When one reads through the gospel narratives, particularly in their opening chapters, it becomes clear that Jesus was born into a time rife with messianic expectation. For instance, in Matthew's gospel, when the Magi come from the east and they inquire of Herod, asking about the, uh, the child who was born king of the Jews, because they had seen a celestial sign that they understood to be a portent of an especially significant royal birth, Herod then called the chief priests and the scribes and, and, and asked them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And I think it's interesting that the response of the chief priests and the response of the scribes and the, the experts in the book of the law was not the, the what now? Rather, they immediately quoted from Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew exactly where to go to find out where the Messiah was going to be born. When the angel appeared to the shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem, he said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, or the Lord Messiah. And, and the shepherds did not respond to the angel with, now, now who did you say was born? Rather, they immediately said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Simeon was waiting night and day in the temple because, Luke 2.26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. When John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching with great power and announcing the coming, imminent coming of the kingdom of God, Luke records that as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, that is, the Messiah. When Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication just a few months prior to his death, John 10.24 says that the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, then tell us plainly. And finally, when Jesus asked his disciples at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In other words, it is clear that the Jews of Jesus' day were in expectation, anticipation of some great eschatological figure whom they referred to as Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, which is brought over into the Greek language with the term Christos or Christ. But you got to ask yourself, where did this expectation of a Messiah come from? And what did they expect him to be? And what did they expect him to do? When, when the shepherds heard, there is born in Bethlehem this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, what did that word, that title Christ, convey to them? 
Well, there are allusions to a messianic figure throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. Some are more explicit, some are less explicit. But I doubt whether all of these allusions combined would have created the level of expectation and anticipation which we find in the Gospels were it not for the passage in Isaiah 9, which is the messianic prophecy par excellence. Unlike other prophecies, including those that we've seen thus far in our Advent series, in Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 7, this passage in Isaiah 9 has no immediate typological fulfillment. Isaiah is not talking about any event that is going to occur in his day. The description of this figure's person and reign is so exalted that no historical figure anytime, anywhere could possibly fit the bill. In other words, when faithful Israelites like the shepherds, like Simeon, like Joseph, when they thought about the coming Messiah, this is the passage that, they, that came to their minds. In Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, we find a description of the Messiah, of his reign, of his victory, and of the salvation which he brings. And we're going to begin this morning at the bottom of the passage because that's the way it's structured. Verses 6 and 7 provide the grounds, the foundation for, for all of the declarations that come before it in verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 and 7 hold up all of the promises of salvation that come before. So we'll start in verse 6. Isaiah announces that glory, verse 1, light, verse 2, joy, verse 3, redemption, verse 4, and peace, verse 5, will come to the people of God. And you've got to ask yourself, how? Why? The answer is found in verse 6. Because a child is born. And what a child he is. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In this single magnificent verse, there is clearly laid before us the, the two natures of this coming Messiah, the two natures of Christ, both his humanity and his deity. The humanity of the coming Messiah is emphasized by the fact that he is a child who is to be born. Gods are not born. Men are born. The Messiah will not be, in other words, a majestic, angelic figure who appears suddenly upon the earth. As, for instance, when Joseph, or not Joshua rather, turned around on the banks of the Jordan River and he saw that the, the divine warrior, the commander of the Lord's army, suddenly standing before him with his sword drawn, ready for battle in Joshua chapter 5. That's not how this Messiah is going to appear upon the earth. This Messiah of whom Isaiah speaks will be born in the normal, natural, human way amidst blood and water and amniotic fluid, amidst the searing pain of a new mother and the piercing cries of a newborn child. Furthermore, if he is a child who is born, 
then he must be expected to grow and develop in the natural human way. He's going to need his diaper changed. He's going to lose his baby teeth and, and grow in his adult teeth. He's going to fall down at times and skin his knee. He's going to have to learn to read. He'll experience puberty. He'll wake up one day to find that there's hair on his chest and face and his voice has dropped an octave. In other words, the, the first line of Isaiah 9-6 is sufficient to lead the Jews to expect a fully human Messiah, a Christ who is true man. But Isaiah goes further, doesn't he? To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. You've got to think that whereas born expresses his true humanity, given speaks of his royal destiny. Given by whom? Well, given by God. Likewise, whereas Child expresses his true humanity. Son expresses his royal lineage. This is the language of royal descent. The son of whom? Verse 7 tells us the son of David. Now this is a point that is repeatedly emphasized throughout the gospel narratives. This human Messiah is born the king of Israel, the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, bearing the weight of rule upon his shoulders. In other words, he's not only truly human, he's truly royal. But Isaiah goes even further. Not only is the Messiah true humanity and not only is he true royalty, he's true deity. The four titles that Isaiah bestows upon him in verse 6 can point to nothing else. Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful refers in 11 out of its 12 Old Testament occurrences to a miraculous work of God. Counselor, of course, speaks to the Messiah's wisdom. He calls him Mighty God. Although the word Mighty can and does refer to powerful men. The title God is unmistakable. It refers only in the Old Testament to deity. Now, to a Jewish mind committed to monotheism, committed to the idea that there is one true and living God and there is none other, for Isaiah to take this child who is to be born, this son who is to be given, and to lay upon him the title of mighty God means one and only one thing. He is not a God, he is the God. The true and living God of Israel. This must have absolutely blown their minds. How is God, Yahweh, the everlasting I am, the eternally self-existent God, going to be born? He calls him everlasting father. Another pointer to his divinity. The term everlasting is only used by Isaiah to refer to God and to his works. And although it's somewhat rare in the Old Testament, the word father is used in reference to God no less than six times. Finally, he calls him prince of peace, which on its own is not explicitly divine. But if we take it within the total context of, of Isaiah's 
prophecies where the peace of the messianic kingdom, the peace that is promised through this coming king, is not an, it's not a partial peace, it's not an impermanent peace, it's a full and lasting and eternal peace, you come to realize that only a divine king, only a divine ruler, only a divine prince could establish this kind of peace. So Isaiah 9-6 presents a picture of a coming king who is both human and divine. The two natures of Christ are right here, 730 years before his birth. 1,200 years before the Council of Chalcedon gave us that classical, orthodox, Christological definition, which says that Jesus is truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, yet without sin, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. That's the Chalcedonian definition of the two natures of Christ. Isaiah didn't have that. The Jews of Jesus' day didn't have that. Yet, even without that, even without the New Testament, the Jews could have known and should have known and some did know that the Messiah whom they expected would be true God and true man. They may not have conceived of the hypostatic union that came out of the Council of Chalcedon, but surely, surely the more reflective among them, men like Simeon, must have had pause to consider how a child who is born could be the mighty God. How the everlasting father could be born a son. In other words, we're not talking in Isaiah 9, 6 about a merely human birth, nor are we talking about a merely divine manifestation of the kinds that we see sporadically throughout the Old Testament. What we're talking about in Isaiah 9, 6, 730 years before the birth of Christ, is something totally new, wholly separate from natural births and divine manifestations. What we're talking about is nothing short of an incarnation. A God becoming man. And it reminds us and prepares the way for John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh incarnate and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Isaiah 9, 6 shows us the incarnation of the Messiah. Verse 7 then provides a description of his coming reign. What kind of kingdom will this God-man rule? 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I just want to walk through verse 7. I want to point out six characteristics of the Messiah's reign. That 730 years before Christ's birth, faithful Jews could have expected from him. First, it is to be an expansive reign. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I take this to to be a reference to the size and the, the sheer scope of his kingdom. In other words, it's as if Isaiah pictures a kingdom whose borders are ever expanding, always pushing further and further out. And this is not the only Old Testament text that teaches us to expect this expansive reign of David's son. Psalm 2-7, God says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations. Not the nation, the nations, your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. And it ought to, ought to cause uh, to come to mind Acts 1.8, where Jesus sent out his church to finish the mission spoken of in Psalm 2 and prophesied here in Isaiah 9.7. He tells his church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. The kingdom of Christ exists wherever people joyfully submit to Christ's rule and reign. In other words, the church, the new covenant, newborn, regenerated church filled with the Holy Spirit is the kingdom of God on earth. And for the past 2,000 years, the church militant has been pushing back the, the borders of the kingdom of this world, expanding Christ's reign into every nation on earth. It's still going on. And one day, Christ will return to defeat the last of his enemies and to establish his everlasting rule over all. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We'll pick that theme up again in a couple of weeks. Second, it's a peaceful reign. In other words, his is not a rule which is exercised and maintained by violence or threat or coercion. It's, it's not a kingdom where rebellion is constantly fomenting under the surface. It's not a kingdom that is constantly under threat of attack from outside forces. It's a kingdom of peace. Isaiah speaks of this kingdom elsewhere, 2-4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And in 11 and 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a peaceful reign. Third, it's a rightful reign. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it. 
I mean, on the one hand, Christ has the right to reign over anything he wants because he's the mighty God. But on the other hand, because of God's covenant with David, because of the fact that God sent his Messiah through the divinic line means that the Messiah reigns over Israel and then over the nations, not as a usurper to the throne, not as a strong-armed tyrant who bludgeons his way to power, but rather with a sense of, of, of lineage and covenantal legitimacy. Because of God's choice of Abraham, because of God's covenant with David, it was right that he should be born through the Davidic line, and therefore it is right that he should reign upon David's throne. Fourth, it's a righteous reign. The Messiah will establish his kingdom and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. I want you to pause here for a moment and think about the backdrop of of Isaiah 9 and this prophecy of the coming Messiah. All of Isaiah 7 through 12, or at the very least, 7 through 9, it all takes place in that setting that we learned about last week in Isaiah 7, that Syro-Ephraimite war and then the subsequent Assyrian invasion of Judah. In other words, Isaiah is prophesying about the righteous reign of, of this divine son of David against the backdrop and in stark contrast to King Ahaz's weak and faithless leadership over Judah. There is a reason Judah is a kingdom of wickedness and war. It has a king who is wicked and weak, incompetent and ignoble. According to Isaiah, the Messiah doesn't suffer from such deficiencies. And so when he establishes his kingdom, he will uphold it with justice and righteousness. He's the anti-Ahaz. Because justice and righteousness flow through his veins, as it were. Fifth, it is an eternal reign. The Messiah will rule over this expansive peaceful, rightful, righteous kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. His kingdom will never be conquered. It will never be invaded. It will never even be threatened. Now, we really don't even have mental categories to conceive of this because all of human history, the only history humanity has ever known has been filled with the rise and the fall of empires and kings. Earth has never seen an immortal king who reigns upon an eternal throne, but Christ will. Finally, it is a certain reign. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, which pretty much settles the matter, doesn't it? I mean, who can stand against the zeal of the Lord of hosts? What does the zeal of an omnipotent God look like? The passion, the determination of an omnipotent God looks like destiny. This will happen, Isaiah says. Now, we're more or less working our way backwards through the passage, following its natural structure. So, verses 6 and 7 stand at the, the bottom, the foundation that holds up all of the promises that come before. So, here's the way it works. Why will there be no more gloom for her who is in anguish? Verse 1. Why will the light shine on a people who walk in darkness? Verse 2. Why will the nation multiply in joy and gladness? Verse 3. Because, you see the for there, that answers the question of why. For or because 
they will experience a tremendous victory over their enemies, verses 4 and 5. Well, how's that going to happen? How is that victory going to occur? Who's going to lead it? Who's going to accomplish it? Particularly in light of the fact that the Israel to whom Isaiah speaks is an absolute wreck and her kings are abject failures. The answer to that comes in verse 6. Because, or for, a child is born, a son will be given, a king who is the son of God incarnate, true God and true man, and he will reign forever and ever, verses 6 and 7. So we've seen the incarnation of the Messiah in verse 6. We've seen the reign of the Messiah in verse 7. Now we're in a position to understand how he's going to achieve victory in verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, Isaiah very intentionally in verses 4 and 5 uses language from the Exodus to describe the deliverance that the Messiah is going to bring. Yoke, burden, shoulder, and oppressor. That's all Exodus language. It's used over and over and over again. All terms that are related to Israel's deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. That's verse 4. Then in verse 5, Isaiah combines it with a very intentional allusion to Gideon's victory over the Midianites. When with a force of only 300, Gideon defeated 32,000 Midianites by the Lord's power. What Isaiah is doing is emphasizing that just like with the the exodus of Israel from Egypt and the defeat of the armies of Pharaoh, and just like Gideon's defeat over the armies of Midian, the victory that that is being declared here is going to be a victory that is the Lord's doing, not man's doing. So the reason we can be sure that we will have glory after our anguish, verse 1, light after our darkness, verse 2, joy after our sorrow, verse 3, is because God has broken the yoke of our burden, the staff across our shoulders, the rod of our oppressors. So in light of the coming of Christ, how should we understand this passage? What yoke, what staff, what rod does Isaiah, and behind Isaiah, the voice of the Holy Spirit, intend? Well, one thing that is abundantly evident from the gospel accounts is that Jesus did not come to establish a political kingdom. He didn't come to wage military battles. His enemy was not the Syrians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans or or any other political force. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he answered, John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. You see, the fact of the matter is, we face an enemy far more deadly, far more damning than the Syrians or the Ephraimites or the Assyrians or the Romans or the North Koreans or or any other political force on the pages of history. See, kingdoms come and go, empires rise and fall, but the world, the flesh, and the devil, sin, death, and hell remain the enemy of mankind. In light of the work of Christ, I think we should understand verse 4 to refer to his victory over the power of sin, the oppression of Satan, and the yoke of the law. At least this is the way the New Testament speaks. I'm going to take you to a few verses and establish this. 
At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter said with regard to the law, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter says, we have a yoke and it's not the Romans. It's the law. Peter speaks of the salvation of Christ as a salvation from bondage to the law. Paul does the same thing, Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And he's talking about the law. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of the victory of Christ as a victory over the powers of evil. Those powers which use the law to keep sinners in bondage to sin and guilt. Colossians 2.13 And you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You catch that? That's the law. The record of debt that stood against us because of its legal demands. Christ canceled the law. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And in so doing, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul speaks of the victory of Christ as a victory over the forces of darkness, which was accomplished by taking the law, the holy, righteous, good law of God, which could only stand in a position of opposition and bondage and condemnation to sinners. He took that law and he nailed it to the cross and he canceled out the debt. And when that law was canceled out in respect to those whom he came to save, the powers of darkness, Satan had no more weapons with which to inflict them, no more weapons with which to keep them in bondage. They're disarmed, they're impotent, they're harmless. When humanity fell in Adam, God withdrew his throne from the earth and he handed it over in judgment to the rule of Satan. And instead of being a kingdom of light, the earth became a kingdom of darkness. Mankind was infected by the disease of sin and came under Satan's dominion. Therefore, rather than being the way of peace and joy and life, the law, God's commandments, became a yoke of bondage. It became to us a law of sin and death. Unable and unwilling to keep the law's demands, all it could do was expose our sin, bring us into condemnation, and inflame our lusts. Every evil human kingdom, every wicked human king, are but physical manifestations of this spiritual reality. In other words, Judah's problem was not finally, ultimately, the king of Assyria and the Assyrian invasion. Judah's main problem was sin, the law, and the dominion of Satan. And that is why the Messiah did not come first to conquer the various kingdoms of this earth. That would have been merely to address the symptom and not the root problem, not the disease. When the Messiah came, he came to cut the head off the snake. Or maybe better, to crush the head of the serpent. He came to destroy the power of sin, to cancel the law's demands, and thereby to dethrone Satan and disarm the powers of evil. 
And Paul says this is exactly what he did by triumphing over them through the cross. See, when Jesus died, he took the sins of his people upon himself and he satisfied the just demands of the law in our place. Hebrews 2.14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think that's the way we should understand verses 4 and 5. The defeat of the various kingdoms of this world and the rulers of this world will come at the last day. Revelation 11.15 promises that. When the Messiah returns visibly, visibly and bodily to reign upon this earth. But the true and ultimate freedom that Christ accomplished is experienced today through faith. Because you don't have to be ruled by sin. You don't have to be ruled by the desires of the flesh. You don't have to live beneath your dignity as an image bearer of God, enslaved to greed and lust and vanity and the praise of men. You don't have to live like that, a slave. You don't have to live in guilt and condemnation, beat down by the law, which can only accuse you. You can be justified before God today because Christ has broken the power of sin, death, and hell. Verse 5, the corpses of all of those enemies lie dead on the field of battle, their boots and their bloody garments as fuel for the fire. So total and complete is Christ's victory won at the cross. That is why there is no gloom for her who is in anguish, verse 1. That is why the people who walked in darkness now see a great light, verse 2. That is why they rejoice as in the harvest, verse 3. Because the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, verse 6, who reigns forever and ever, verse 7, has conquered and destroyed all of his and our enemies, verses 4 and 5. So I want to conclude this morning by looking at the first three verses and Isaiah's description of the salvation that the Messiah brings to his people. First, he will turn their gloom to glory. He'll turn their gloom to glory. Isaiah 9 is not the start of a new chapter, not really. It's not the start of a new prophetic unit. It's intimately connected with Isaiah 7 and 8. It's a dark and distressing time in Israel's history. The kingdom is divided. They're at war with one another. The northern kingdom of Israel has joined forces with another enemy, the kingdom of Syria, and they're preparing to invade the southern kingdom of Judah in order to force Judah's alliance against the true terror of the region, namely the king of Assyria. Isaiah has gone to Judah's king, Ahaz, the king of Judah, to trust and to implore him to trust in the Lord and to believe his promise of deliverance, but Ahaz will not believe. Instead, Ahaz raids the temple treasury and attempts to purchase salvation from the king of Assyria, but his plan backfires. The the Syro Ephraimite alliance invades Judah anyway and decimates the nation. Then the king of Assyria sweeps in and invades all three nations. Isaiah 7 and 8 predict all of this and predicts that it will occur as an act of judgment of God upon his people. So look back at Isaiah 8, 5. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, 
The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And the result of this coming flood of God's judgment will be destruction, distress, and darkness for the people. Verse 21 of chapter 8. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isn't that a rather uncomfortably accurate picture of humanity and its lost condition? Without hope, without God in the world, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, just passing through this life, distressed and starving, looking everywhere for satisfaction but finding none. And it's because we're so desperately unhappy and unfulfilled that we become enraged and we blame various sources. We blame the government, the king. We blame God. We look upward to heaven. We can't see any hope. We look down upon the earth. We find nothing but distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. Is that resonating with any of you in your present condition? Have you turned your face away from God and gone the way of sin and unbelief, looking for joy and satisfaction in every corner of this world, but finding only empty promises? Like those shopping mall Christmas trees that are surrounded beneath by by beautifully wrapped packages tied up with shiny bows but containing only empty boxes because they were just for show. That's what sin is. It's shiny wrapping concealing an empty promise. And so you find yourself here this Christmas season, this morning, empty, emaciated, a shadow of your former self, like a stray dog gnawing furtively on the scraps of a bone that the world every once in a while throws your way? If you can relate to the picture that Isaiah paints in verses 21 and 22, then Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is good news for you. Because it's not a different people that Isaiah addresses. It's the same anguished people, the same darkened people, the same distressed people, people, the same people under the Lord's present judgment. There is no break between verse 22 of chapter 8 and verse 1 of chapter 9. It is for the people of Isaiah 8 that the child is born. It is for the people in gloom and anguish and darkness and distress and starvation of their souls for whom this child is born and this son is given. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners not the righteous. So verse 1 comes against that backdrop, and he says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, the Lord, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is meant to be kind of surprising, by the way. 
the geographic region which first appears in this prophecy of messianic salvation, it's not Jerusalem. It's not even Judah. It's the furthest reaches of Israel. Zebulun and Naphtali were the northernmost tribes. The land beyond the Jordan, which is in the modern-day Golan Heights, is the northeasternmost region of Israel. And in that contained a major trade route from Mesopotamia down to Egypt known as the Way of the Sea. In other words, it's as if Isaiah intends to say that the blessing of the Messiah, the, the salvation that he brings, is going to extend first to those farthest away. This surprise, by the way, was shared by the religious leaders of Jesus' day who discounted his messianic claims because of where he came from, namely Galilee of the Gentiles, and who he associated with, namely sinners. But they could have known it's right here in Isaiah 9. Isaiah had told them that God was going to make Galilee glorious by giving them a child, by giving them a son, by giving them the Messiah. So if you find yourself in gloom or in anguish or in contempt this morning, thinking that you're the last person God would be interested in saving, then you should take comfort from verse 1 of chapter 9 because it's the last people who would think they were worthy of God's salvation that God sends his Messiah to first. The Messiah has come come to take away your contempt. He's come to remove your anguish. He's come to turn your gloom into glory. He's come to make you whole. He's come to make you new. He's come to make you glorious. And this is what Jesus does. He takes the poor. He takes the downtrodden, the rejected, the lowly, the outcast, the sinner who is held in contempt, and he takes away their contempt, and he removes their shame, and he drives away their gloom and their anguish. And he clothes them in robes of joy and garments of hope. It's what he did with the prodigal son. It's what he did with the sinful woman of of Luke 7. That's what he does with the adulterous woman of John 8. This is how Jesus received them. How he lifted up their heads. He defended them from those who would condemn. So if you identify with those figures, if you identify with the prodigal son, or the prostitute of Luke 7, or the adulterous woman of Luke Uh, John 8, or any of those other tax collectors and sinners that all of the religious people were so incensed that Jesus was hanging out with, then you should take great hope in Isaiah 9-1 because it declares that the Messiah has come for you to take away your gloom and anguish and make you glorious. Second, he will turn their darkness to light. The advent of the Messiah is likened to the rising of the sun. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Which again calls to mind the opening verses of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him not anything was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or Jesus' words at the Feast of Tabernacles, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's what it means to be converted, by the way. Verse 2 happens to you. There you are, stumbling about in the darkness, bumping into things, tripping over that. 
But suddenly someone turns on the lights and now you see all things differently. You see the world differently. You see it clearly. You see sin for what it is. Empty promises wrapped up in shiny packaging. You see God for who he is. Everlastingly glorious. Unbelievably merciful. The light of Christ illuminates everything and changes the way you perceive everything. Everything about sin, everything about yourself, everything about God, everything. And then finally, he will turn their anguish to joy. Joy is the distinguishing characteristic of those who walk in the light. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide their spoil. There's no joy in Isaiah 8. But there will be joy when the Messiah comes. It's interesting that Isaiah promises the people who are in the midst of distress and darkness and anguish and gloom and sorrow. He promises them two times of joy, or he relates the joy that is to come to two events that they haven't had experience with in a while. First, the harvest, and secondly, victory. They haven't had a harvest in a while. Thorns and briars are filling the the land that once was beautiful and fertile, according to the end of Isaiah 7. They haven't experienced victory in a long time. They've been the defeated ones. And yet Isaiah turns that right around and he says, you're going to know the joy of harvest again. And you're going to know the joy of victory again. Sinner, you're going to know the joy of harvest again. You will know joy again. Darkness and defeat will not have the last word. You'll reap a harvest. You'll enjoy the victor's spoils. Why? Because a child is born and a son is given. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer with me. I want to ask you a question. Do you find yourself this morning in anguish and gloom like the people of Isaiah's day? Has your soul been decimated by sin like their land had been ravaged by enemies? I tell you today that you you will be glorious. You will be a radiant image of the ineffable God. Do you walk in darkness, wandering about aimlessly, looking for purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction, but in your blindness, finding none? I tell you that the sun of righteousness will rise upon you like the dawn. It will drive away every shadow of sin. Is your soul this morning starving, diseased and distressed and hungry? Enraged and embittered against God and man like the people of Isaiah's day. You will know the joy of harvest and you will experience the joy of victory. Why? Because God will break the yoke of sin upon your shoulder. He will shatter the rod of your oppressor. He will lay waste every enemy of your soul until they all lie dead on the field of battle. How? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That child is Jesus. He is born. He has conquered. He is reigning. And the encouragement of the Word of God to you this morning is to hope in Him. And you too will know His glory, His light, and His everlasting joy.